Earlier today, we heard my conversation with Dr. Evel Ewing about guaranteed income, how it works, the different programs going on around Chicago, and why direct cash payments can be an effective form of assistance. If you missed it, you should go back and listen. Eve is the host of Guarantee, a podcast that spoke to participants in several of these programs. And now we're going to hear an episode about John, a minister, veteran, and former freedom writer who participated in the city of Chicago's Guarantee Income Pilot. Even though we rarely take time to acknowledge it, each of us has a place in the flowing streams of history the histories of our families, of our communities, of our peoples, and our personal histories of growth and change. I lived all over the city, but most of the time I spent here on the west side of Chicago. And looking at a photo with somebody allows you to encounter an artifact of that history, a thing you can hold in your hand, a talisman, a time travel device to say, this was me, here I was. I swear to you, I didn't dream it all up. That's a picture of me on my wedding day nine years ago. Wow. I didn't have gray hair there. <laughs> I don't forget my first love, which is the ministry. I tell everybody, never put a preacher in front of a microphone. <laughs> amen, amen, amen. I'm Eve Ewing, and this is Guaranteed, the podcast where we talk about what happens when regular people around my hometown of Chicago receive direct cash assistance, guaranteed income. It's a show about the choices people make, the dreams they pursue, and the impossible things that become a little more possible when folks get a little bit of money, guaranteed. Our guest on today's episode is John, who's a participant in the official Guaranteed Income pilot program run by the municipal government of the city of Chicago. On this show, we talk about a lot of guaranteed income programs, but this one involves about 5,000 families, making it the biggest. I talked with John about his place in history, beginning with his time coming of age during the civil rights movement. John is a fighter, someone who believes he was put on this earth to be a warrior for justice, by hook or by crook. Let's hear from John. I've been a minister since I was 12. I was ordained when I was 14. I'm also a Vietnam War veteran. And uh, in the 60s, I was a freedom writer. I was born on the west side and raised basically on the west side of Chicago. I was born in 1952, a Korean War baby. My father, as a matter of fact, he was from Trinidad. I believe he got his citizenship by serving in the Korean War. My uncles, they were World War II veterans. My grandfather was a World War I veteran. And it goes back all the way to the Civil War. Hmm. And so is that part of what inspired you to want to join the service yourself? No, actually, I was tricked by the recruiter. The same week uh, I graduated from Marshall High School, I had three brothers that was in the service already. And the recruiter, he told me that if I enlisted, that he would have me connected with my brothers on brother duty. They were home way before I got home. (laughs) I had to uh, convince my mother to sign the papers, and it took me some weeks and the day that I left, she actually cried like a baby. You know, I left May 19th, Malcolm X's birthday. 
I come from a long line of warriors and a long line of ministers. My grandfather, he was the uh, founder and pastor of New Home Missionary Baptist Church in Forest City, Arkansas. It's still there. Two of my uncles and uh, my mother, who's uh, also a minister. She was the oldest daughter. And it sounds like for you, putting those two things together, being a minister and being a warrior, those are kind of like two uh, pieces of your identity that really build who you are. Yeah, me and King David. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good role model to have. Is the is the story of David in the Bible, is, is he a, a figure that's especially important to you, or is there a favorite story that you think about, that you go back to a piece of scripture? My favorite story is that of Joshua and Caleb. Caleb was an old man, but he was one of the two spies that gave favorable reports. He said, even though they are giants, we are able to take the land. And then he actually allowed all the other tribes of Israel to choose their land. He said, save me the hardest and the toughest that I conquered. And he was 80-something years old. He was an old man, but he was able. So now I would say that I identify more with Caleb. Tell me about how you got involved in the, the freedom struggle and what it was like being a freedom writer. I belong to Stone Temple Baptist Church. Me and my family, we were lifelong members. As a matter of fact, my stepfather's name is carved in the stone on the side of it now as original donors to the church. And when Dr. King came to Chicago, he came to our church. When he would speak, you would get chills. Through the volume of the speech and the control volume and the time when he would calm down. And he had a way of just bringing all the people in with him through his narration. And I was impressed by it. And some friends of mine were impressed by it. And uh, so one day we was in the neighborhood and we was hanging out. And a friend of mine whose name is Willie Puller, he said, man, I'm going to volunteer to go down south. And another friend of mine said, man, what do you want to go down there for and get beat up and everything? And he said, because years from now, this is going to be part of history. He said, I want to be able to tell my grandkids I was there. And when I heard him say that, I also signed up with him. Now, I went down south after he was assassinated. I was on the uh, Poor People's Campaign March. And so during our trip down there, we encountered a uh, white supremacist Ku Klux Klan that was bent on doing us harm. At nighttime, they were in cotton fields, corn fields, and things of that nature. At one time, we had to stay in the University of Kentucky to avoid the Ku Klux Klan. And also, there was discrimination and prejudices when we were headed up north to Washington, D.C. When we got to Cleveland, Ohio, we were marching around Dr. Ralph Abernathy's car because they wanted to tow it. And the Cleveland Police Department on horseback came, and I never knew horses were that big until that time. And they had sawed-off baseball bets, and they just beat the people silly. When Dr. King was in Chicago and he was talking about, you know, how racist Chicago was, you know, he said Chicago was so so racist even compared to the South. Is that something you had been aware of prior to his visit? What was your perception growing up? Oh, definitely. That was during the time of George Lincoln Rockwell, the leader of the uh, American Nazi Party. Dr. King, he had the unlucky experience of experiencing Marquette Park. There were quite a few neighborhoods in Chicago. There was Marquette Park, and there was the uh, neighborhood that, where the mayor lived in, Bridgeport, yeah. And the northwest side, you know, actually, 
where African-American lived that was like encompassed by ethnic neighborhoods. And so there was always a conflict with the Chicago Police Department, which was basically all white there. And they had a perception of African-Americans that was negative. Was that your first time in the South? Had you been to the South before? Oh, I had been to the South every year. We would go down South and visit my grandmother and grandfather. Matter of fact, I used to sleep with my grandmother. She's always want me to be with her. and uh, visit my cousins. And so I was familiar with the racism of the South firsthand because when me and my cousins would be out playing, it was certain things they'd tell me to do or to say or not to do. And I've seen other families that had relatives come from up north to visit with them that they had to hurry up and get their children out because of some infraction against Southern code. So you feel like a lot of times kids from the North, they didn't necessarily know all the rules to follow or they had a hard time acclimating? They definitely didn't. Uh, I remember one time and I was young and I really didn't know. A little white kid called me a nigger. So I attacked him and, and was all the way up on his porch while his parents were you know, pulling him in the door. And, ooh, my grandmother and grandfather, they act like I had did something personal to them. They was crying and they were bending over and they telling my mother, uh, you got to get that boy back out of here. You got to get him back up to Chicago. They were scared. They were scared for your life. When you were on the bus, were you ever afraid? Actually, no. Uh, I had went through those experiences. Not only down, down south when I visited my grandparents, I had them in Chicago. And uh, basically, I came from a migrant farm family. We moved from state to state when I was real young, and I picked cotton, chopped sugar cane. You know, uh, I performed jobs that I never got any credit for with Social Security because they were they didn't take out Social Security. And so we traveled the country, and I experienced racism in many places. Like in New York State, my family went up there to work for Mott's Apple, company. And we, the kids, we worked in the cabbage patches, chopping cabbage. That was a, a northern state, right by the Canadian border. We was up in Kent, New York. And uh, me and my baby sister, we were the only two black kids in the all-white school. And the bus would come and get us. So I had experienced all of that throughout my life. And so it wasn't uh, a traumatic thing when I actually encountered the things. Like most people of that time, it had became commonplace. And it was like, that's just the way things are. I thank God because during that time, when I encountered a lot of racism and hatred, me and my family also experienced a lot of kindness and charity from other white people. And uh, quite a few of us, especially my fifth grade teacher, I still remember to this day. He would always be my favorite teacher. I spoke with an accent when I was a kid, like my father did. And so I would be teased. And uh, by me being small in stature, they thought they could bully me. And so I ended up in a lot of fights. I would fight every day. And so when I come to school, my clothes would be torn. So Mr. Barley, he thought it was because my family couldn't afford clothes. And he went out and uh, purchased me some clothes. I turned him down. I thanked him for it. But I was uh, too proud to accept him. You know, you mentioned before we started recording that you are a very passionate musician. Could you tell us again, what are all the instruments that you play? 
Oh, I play guitar, rhythm, bass, lead guitar, trumpet, saxophone, keyboards, organ and piano, African kalimba. You would be surprised. And most of my friends were surprised that I used to get talked about because of this. But I liked hard rock. I'm not surprised. Tell us more. So who's who's some of your favorite artists? Oh, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, John Fogarty, <laughs> uh, Crazy Clearwater Revival, uh, The Beatles, uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers, uh, most of the classic rock band, Led Zeppelin. Oh, I forgot one of my, my favorite, my favorite. Oh, I'm trying to think of the name of this group. I seen them in Long Beach, California, when they were filming this TV show, uh, Hollywood A Go-Go. The guys that made uh, Give Me Some Lovin'. Oh, would you give me some uh, this, oh, the Sp- Right, the Spencer Davis group. I'm yeah, glad you remembered so I didn't have to sing no more because that was going to be good <laughs> <laughs> for anybody. Yeah. And so happened, I was right up on their instruments while the camera was around them and everything. And also, that same day, my brothers and I, we walked up on and spoke with uh, Dick Van Dyke, Jerry Van Dyke, who was escorting their mother. And so I had good interaction with my company members, the members of my company. And they would always come and, and ask me to play a song or sing a song or something. And, and I would make up songs about our training, you know, that was uh, funny. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you remember any of the songs that you used to make up for the company? Yeah. <laughs> okay, this is called the Bicillin Blues. Okay. You know, we had to take a whole series of shots, and there was this one shot called the Bicillin that would normally have everybody not able to walk the next day. And so... I wrote this song and said, uh, I've got no money, I've got holes in my shoes. Some folks say I have nothing to lose. I've got something. I've got Basil and Blues. <laughs> <laughs> you had to bring a little bit of Chicago out there with you. Yeah, and I put a little bit of Bean Cross with it. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, um, did you used to play guitar while you were out there too or any other instruments? We had music wrong. I could get a get an instrument. So a lot of the guys would come to the music room, and that's when they gave me the nickname. They called me Johnny Mac because I was playing a lot of Fleetwood Mac songs. And you know the lead guitar player whose nickname is Johnny Mac. And so one day, there was a white guy. He was calling some friends of his over to my music room. He said, man, come here. I want you to listen to this. This is a black Johnny Mac. And so that name stuck with me. I had uh, instruction when I was about to be discharged. And I knew I went down to the American Legion and and signed up for the American Legion. I'm still a member of the American Legion. And they sent me to uh, training for a uh, bricklayer. And then I got a job, a nice paying job from that. The problem was that I was making more money than I had responsibilities. But I worked in construction as a concrete mason for quite a number of years after that before I decided to go back to school, go back to college and get a degree. All of my life, I had wanted to do two things for the time I was very young. I wanted to be able to teach the law of God and argue the laws of men. So my mother would always say that I was going to be a lawyer. And so what brought you back to Chicago? So I was born here. When I was growing up, in the wintertime, I was raised up in Lawndale area. You know, that's what Stone Temple Church is at. And we were so bad, we would get 
a wrench and open up the fire hydrant in the wintertime and freeze oh up gosh. the whole the whole street so we would be able to ice skate. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I know the people in the neighborhood, they must have hated, hated us. <laughs> but, but I came back to Chicago because uh, I missed the snow. You're very active in activism and organizing right now, currently. And two of the areas you work in are disability. And another area you work in is um, immigration. And so could you talk about each of those things and why those became important topics for you? Maybe we'll start with disability. Why, why is disability a topic that became important for your activism? Because uh, when it comes to disability law, there are a lot of poor people who are eligible for SSI, which means they don't have the uh, prerequisite work credit hour to receive Social Security disability. And so I work in a neighborhood where there's a lot of poor people, and there's a lot of people who work jobs, but they was jobs that didn't take out income taxes, so they don't have the, the 40 work credit to get disability. And so a lot of people just don't bother with them. And so I started to uh, file application and work with them to get them approved so that they can at least have some type of income coming in. And as far as the immigration concern, uh, I have never forgotten the fact that Jesus was also an immigrant. You know, when you were young, you mentioned you did a lot of labor that also didn't count towards Social Security because it was a cash economy. Um, and you also probably worked with, a, you were a migrant worker and you worked with other migrant workers. Does that influence the way you think about these issues now? It really don't. That's life. But uh, I think one wise man once said, if you find something you love doing, you will never work another day in your life. Oh, I love the fact that I can actually help somebody. I love the fact to see a person's life improve. So what made you decide that you wanted to apply for a guaranteed income program? You know, I seen it advertised and I was at home on my computer and I, just decided to do it. I had never won anything in my life, so I didn't expect to be to be picked. Well, I just put it in to put it in. Once I put it in for it, I had basically forgotten all about it because, like I said, I'd never won anything in my life. What do you use it for, if you don't mind us asking? Or how does it change your budget? I'm able to keep up with my bills. I was always behind my bills. My rent was steady going up, and which would take all of the money that I would get every month. And so that was not much money left to do anything elsewhere. And uh, since I've been receiving that, I've got a little room to breathe. Believe it or not, my emotional and psychological well-being has improved tremendously because I don't have the stress that I used to go through, experience daily. You know, the thing about you is it seems like if you have a little room to breathe, that's something that pays dividends towards other people because it seems like you're using all your time to help other people. I've been doing it all of my life. All of my jobs, if you look at my Facebook page, all of my jobs, when I uh, work for the Westside Health Authority as an outreach worker for the Affordable Care Act, there were me and another guy, and we were there, only two outreach workers. And we won the state prize for having signed up the most people. Just to tell the, you. For the two years in a row. And wow. the number two group was Mount Sinai Hospital, who had 150 <laughs> Outreach workers. Wow. So you were hitting the pavement. You were pounding the pavement. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to all the L stops, the bus stops, walking up and down the streets, the supermarkets, the shopping mall. <laughs> you know. 
And so, you know, when you say that, you know, knowing that your bills are going to be okay, knowing that your rent is going to be okay, that gives you some room to breathe. What does that make possible for you in your everyday life? How does that change your life every day? You know, the psychological help. At one time, before I was was receiving this money, I couldn't hardly walk. I was having pains in my leg and pains in my side. Now, I have arthritis and I also have uh, herniated discs in my back. But uh, since I've been receiving this money and uh, been paying my bills and everything, I noticed one day, and I can't remember exactly what day it was, that I'm walking normal again. I don't have to use the cane, and uh, the pain is in my shoulder. And I believe that was stress-related. And you didn't even notice. It just happened so gradually. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And then I looked around and said, wait a minute, I'm walking normally. (laughs) And... uh, uh, maybe we'll spend more time with my grandkids and my children and actually relax at home. They depend on me to take them places, to have them out, play with their pets, to attend their uh, school functions, you know, provide emotional support for them. My grandson, DeAndre, he's the child of my youngest girl. She had suffered a miscarriage with her first child, so she was very fearful when she was pregnant with him. And so... I uh, basically raised him. His uh, father ended up being killed by his brother, believe it or not. And so from the time he was small, I raised him. And so I I used to take him to church and every place I used to go all of his life. And all his schools he went to, and he went to an after-school program here in Chicago. One of the teachers there called uh, his mother one day and said, Ooh, did you know that your son, DeAndre, he sure know how to pray. He sure know how to lead people in prayer. (laughs) She said, yeah, his granddaddy told him that. (laughs) You know, there's something you said earlier when you first came home from the service and you were able to get a trade job, right? You were a bricklayer, you were doing masonry. And nowadays it's very hard to make a living in the same way as rent is going up and so many other costs are going up. Do you see a difference in the way work has changed, in the way affordability has changed over the course of your lifetime? When I was growing up, I was working for a time right here in Chicago at the University Inn across the street from the county hospital. I was a busboy and a waiter. I made a dollar an hour. I worked 10 hours a day, six days a week. And I was also a full-time student at Marshall High School. Do you feel like a dollar went further in those days in terms of being able to afford necessities? Oh, most definitely. Most definitely, man. My mother bought a house in 1972, like a Victorian mansion. She paid $27,500 for it. Today, is, it's appraised up in the hundreds, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, people bought houses then with like a five-year mortgage, things of that nature. Now they... If you want th- want to buy a house, you got to look at 30-year mortgages. Most people won't live that long, you know, to pay for a house. And so there was a lot of homeowners there. Mostly all of our grandparents and our mothers and fathers owned, owned houses. There's been a disinvestment in the, uh, especially the African-American community and other low-income community to uh, acquiring property because of the... Uh, skyrocketing construction costs or real estate market. Anybody with a job could buy a house during the time I was coming up. You know, you talked about the ways that guaranteed income has 
changed your life. What do you think the impact would be if this was something that was available to more people? It just seemed that there, there's always a backlash when taxpaying Americans receive any benefit from uh, the country. You know, there's a uh, misnomer. Like, for instance, I have enough Social Security work credit in to where I qualify for a retirement benefit. But uh, too many people look at Social Security as an entitlement program, which is not. It's a trust fund. We paid into it. And uh, you never get it all back. Anyway, you can only get up to 75% of it back. But what about the money that all your relatives made and paid into it and never, never even drew? And then another misnomer is that, well, you're giving these to non-taxpayer. There's not a person in this country that don't pay taxes. We pay taxes on gasoline. We pay taxes on tobacco. We pay taxes on cigarettes. We pay taxes on food, on clothes. There's no such thing as a non-taxpayer in America. Many of the people that I know who are actually in need, you know, they have a problem with keeping the phone on. Right now, I have about four or five friends whose phone service is not working you know, because they wasn't able to pay the phone bill. And so uh, I would either have to drive to their house and hope they were home or wait until they pay their phone bill to get in touch with them. And this is important because, you know, today we even have a telehealth program you know, because I communicate with my doctors over the telephone and things of that nature. Yeah, I mean, you really can't do anything without a phone. You can't apply for a job. You can't make sure your child or your grandchild is okay. It's really hard to do anything. You know, we talked a little bit about housing, phone. Are there other bills or expenses you feel are really hard for people right now? Housing is number one. There's no reason in the world why the richest country in the world should have people sleeping up under bridges. You know, when you look at it, being homeless is a full-time job. People say, well, go out and get your job. Being homeless is a full-time job. Mm. Just to get through the day, just to find a place to eat, sleep. Mm. And, and to be safe because people victimize the homeless. I'm concerned about the homeless children. There are so many homeless children. And what actually going through their minds as they grow older and older and older, you know, how will it affect their life? as adults. You've been really wonderful, and I'm so grateful to hear from you and learn from you today. Um, as you think about your life and the different chapters of your life, where are you now that's different from where you were two or three years ago, especially having this income coming in? And where do you see yourself going? At age 71, I don't look too far into the future. I take one day at a time. I thank God for each day that I'm here. Uh, having the income has been a tremendous uh, help to me, emotionally, psychologically, and physically. I'm finally, even with my bills, with the things I owe, my creditors, things of that nature. So going forward, I just take it one day at a time. Do you ever see yourself retiring? <laughs> I retired six years ago. <laughs> don't It don't look like it. It don't look like it. It sounds like I've been blowing my own horn for a while. I love to hear it. That's what I came for. That's what the people want to hear, okay? We want to hear about the great and exciting, wonderful work that you're doing. So I'm very grateful that I got to learn with you. So thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. It was clear from our conversation how much John's community has shaped who he is. 
And so it felt important for us to go visit him in his home place, among his family and his neighborhood, where his history is rooted. We are out here in the Austin community on the west side. It's what we would consider a beautiful day in Chicago. <laughs> you know, it's not currently raining on us. It's very gray. Um, it's probably about like a strong 59 to 62 degrees. Um, we're right here at the end of the street. There's like a, a cul-de-sac dead end into a, a playground. There's kids out playing. There's um, passing by this apartment building that has these. Um, honestly, this is what I aspire to as I age. It has like hella... Um, what do you call these windmills mm -hmm. like lawn ornaments and it says glorious place so i want to say shout out to gloria we really appreciate you we're enjoying your yard decor there's a, a pan-african flag uh for one of the bungalows across the street um yeah it's a great day producer damon and i hung out for a bit on john's stoop and he shared some photos and keepsakes with us who are some of the people tell me some of the people in this picture oh these uh the mothers of the church, these are the ladies. And we were honoring women that day. Here's a picture of my wife, my grandson, my granddaughter, and the three daughters. That's a picture of me on my wedding day, nine years ago. Wow. Downtown. I didn't have gray hair there. <laughs> this is my sister-in-law. Hello, it's very Good nice to meet you. So now I get to ask you, what was John like as a child? Oh. Terrible. <laughs> Terrible. What was he into? What was he up to? What was up to? Mm -hmm. Everything, anything, name it all, he did it. Yep. He did it. Anything, everything. John's passion for justice is a constant through line in his life. But as the world is ever evolving, so is his focus. At the time of this recording, Chicago is struggling to offer shelter and support to migrants arriving daily from the Texas border. For John, that is an urgency of this moment, but the way we should address it is not new. Right now, you know we have immigrant crisis here in the city. Yes. And not only in the city, we have it in the country. Mm -hmm. And so I've been working with the immigrant community. I've been helping uh, people. I have a client coming here now that her son has a... Uh, uh, what, a, what a deportation hearing coming up. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to get that hearing dismissed for, you know. Uh, so I know all the various petitions and forms mm -hmm. to file. And that, that's generally an answer to everything they come up with against them. But most people don't know. Mm -hmm. I believe that uh, the government has been somewhat disrespectful of the community. But the whole city should come together to aid them, you know, because most of God's commandment uh, deals with the stranger that is within that gates. Taz the 10% so people could have food, the widows, orphans, and the strangers that are within your gates, which means immigrants. Most of these so-called Christians forget that Jesus was an immigrant. Okay, if you've ever heard me talk, you've probably heard me say what I'm about to say, so sorry, not sorry. But talking to John was yet another reminder that social movements need lots of people. And most of those people will never be famous. You might learn the name of the person who gave the speech, 
but not the everyday people who showed up to the meetings, who set up the microphone, who got the permits to march. John is one of those everyday people who's trying to figure out the things he can do to help the people where he is in the place where he is. And like other regular people, he's faced struggles in making ends meet. How do we build a world that is sustainable and offers care for those people, especially when there are elders? I don't see John resting anytime soon, but as I think of the ways he has shown up for others, that we collectively can show up for him. Guaranteed is created by Respair Production and Media and me, your host, Eve Ewing, with the support of the Economic Security Project and extra thanks to Jenna Severson for her assistance. Our producers are Damon Williams, Daniel Kisslinger, and Jeanette Harris-Courts, and our theme music is the song Woof by Sen Morimoto. Catch you next time. Shout out to Gloria. We really appreciate you. We're enjoying your yard decor. She got a little um, baby raccoon, a little baby cat, ceramic, butterflies. I'm really feeling it. It's just really nice.